Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin Kukara, with my fabulous guest, Dr. Sharna Prasad, doctor of physical therapy. And today we're going to talk about the dangers of causal thinking, and particularly as that uh, relates to pain. So we have talked about many, many different things in the past. We've talked about constructive pain models, fixing versus facilitation, empowered versus entrapping care. Um, but kind of an underlying theme there is the idea of causality versus what I call constructionism. And so what I mean by that is people will often say, well, where is the pain coming from? Right. And so that default, that's default thinking into what I call the pain pus model, where if I, if my finger hurts, then the pain is coming from my finger. And we know Physiologically, that is not the case. The only thing that actually comes from the extremity up to the brain is nerve information. That sensory information then goes up. That sensory information is then attached to or combined with previous experiences, learning, expectations, current situation and beliefs, other threatening uh, uh, inputs from the surroundings. And we take all that information in order to construct an experience of pain. But when we, we default to that causality one of the things that I have noticed is it starts to create this cascade of downstream care, or we forget about what is functioning versus what is not functioning because we have all these you know, degenerative changes that are typically labeled as, quote, pain pus generators, which we know that there is many or more people have those same changes that don't have associated pain. Um, but then we, you know, lead to all this other sort of downstream care, further imaging, further surgeries, et cetera. So Sharna, talk to me about causality thinking when it comes to pain and particularly what you're seeing with your, either your colleagues or with your clients in any of the frustrations, or, um, if, or if you're not having any frustrations, what are, what are your experiences around causality with, with pain? Well, so, okay. I, I talk with examples because that's just how things are. So I had a, you know, a total knee patient came coming in from um, for therapy and, you know, was doing really well and started getting better. He had chronic pain for a very long time, started getting his knee range of motion back, um, an extremely catastrophic thinking person. And then he um, started seeing um, as soon, you know, after a couple of visits, he's like, oh my gosh, my shoulder is starting to hurt me. And now it, 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 my shoulder is really in excruciating pain. And I was like, wow tell me more about this because you know all that chronic pain you had that was all focused on the knee is now you know coming to you know that is showing up as the shoulder so the pain plus has moved from the knee to the to the shoulder is how we would understand and I tried to explain that to him and um but there wasn't much he was ready to listen because he was very much into that tissue base um you know my knee was um ruined and that's why I had to get surgery and now I'm going to need to have surgery for the shoulder and no matter how much we tried to work on that I, I don't think I succeeded in helping um, change his um, pain beliefs but I know one thing I did plant some seeds in his uh, mind so that he could think about it further as to how that um, you know how pain is so much bigger than just your shoulder or your knee hurting. So at least, at least aware when flares occur, what else to look for. Right. And, it, and it just came to me um, as, as you were talking about, we, we, we talk often about how difficult it is, not just clients alone, from a clinical standpoint, 
getting people to understand pain, like the science of pain and this embodied pain practice model and the challenge where we even know some really, really good clinicians. Um, but there's some kind of glaring points where you're like, okay, there's something's not clicking. You're not, you're not getting this one key motivator here. And I do think this is probably one of the most difficult topics for people to actually quote unquote get and get, I mean, is like your brain just goes, aha, you know, the matrix kind of moment thing when everything opens up and you see the big picture uh, because they're, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've seen them. I've seen forum discussions on this again, people who are, have gone to all the classes and, and can kind of speak the lingo or whatever. And then they default. Well, this pain is different because it's coming from right. And they're, and they'll, and they'll do that. Like, well, that's chronic pain. But you know what? This one actually is is the shoulder because we know that it there's whatever there's a bursitis, there is a tendinopathy or, or or whatever, and so we know that this somehow is different than that stuff over there is, or the fibromyalgia is different than the uh, than the phantom limb and 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 all these kind of things where um where we're still thinking in this sort of causative nature as if the pain pus is coming from, we just move where the location of the pain pus is coming from, depending on really on, depending on the scenario that we're seeing and what kind of aligns up with what our, our perceptual uh, bias is. Yeah, that, that is still, it doesn't matter how much learning you're absolutely right. People can have the whole lingo in them and, they have done a lot of reading and they can be teachers themselves. But when it comes to that pain pus, I think that's the hardest part to come around because yes, they are. They're still thinking that that, that area that is tender is what is, um, that is the source of the pain, which is, you know, it's very hard to get your head beyond that because it's like, well, that, that part is hurting. So yes, that that is pain, but that whole processing that it is in the brain that the the you know that pain is being processed is not yet completely embodied in the clinician. And until that is completely embodied, we're still going to give diagnosis like, oh, this is a bursitis, this is a rotator cuff, but you know, it can be, but we know from research that you know you can have rotator cuff. Um, tears and still have no pain. So I, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's a hard one to get around it. And then what we do is in that process, oh, that doctor told you it's degenerative disc disease, but now I'm going to tell you it's bursitis. So what have you done? You've just taken one diagnosis and replaced it with another. And that threat in the patient might have actually increased because they might have come to terms with um, the degenerative disc disease or the arthritis. And now you've given them a new diagnosis to stress about. So yeah, it's very frustrating to see that go back and forth. Yeah, well, definitely increasing a sense of uncertainty uh, in, in a way that is not understandable for a client is not a way to make them feel better. It's like, wait a second, now I don't really know what's going on here when you're, when you're this trusted person said it was just a generation, this trusted person is now saying bursitis. Um, what does that mean to me? <laughs> you know? Um, but it, it is like, I, so I'm going to, I'm going to step back because this is such a challenging, this is such a challenging topic for everyone. You almost have to sort of pull apart the audiences again, because it's, it's difficult. I just, I just going to say this. Sometimes the clients or the patients will get it faster than I think the clinicians do. 
definitely. On the other hand, you know, from a from a clinical standpoint, from a clinical standpoint, I think is because we're we have this kind of double. We have all these different hats that we're wearing. We're the clinician who is trying to to work with or facilitate change with the individual. Then we have the the employee or business owner who has to do the billing codes, and the billing codes then require a different type of of thinking process as well. Because what you code from ICD nine may actually make no sense from a pain's perspective, because they're wanting you to label all this stuff as a pain as a pain plus generator. Then we have our own defaults and belief systems when it comes to what we know and understand about pain. And then we have the actually way that the brain itself is designed because the, the brain from a safety mechanism is designed to take lots and lots of complex information so we to process it very emergently, but to perceive it in a very sequential or cause and effect fashion because that helps us to engage quickly, divine, to do this, this safe behavior. And for acute you know, episodes, it makes a lot of sense. It makes more sense if you feel something coming up from your leg and it's, it has a sharp attention, a sharp, a sharp characteristic to it that grabs your attention, that pulls you down to focus on that area. That makes sense to say, well, you know what? The pain is coming from the tiger that just bit my leg, right? Because there now we have laceration there. But even in that acute scenario, if the tiger bites you or the knife stabs you, the pain doesn't come from that area. The pain is still being constructed in your brain. And from an example that, that I've been trying to use more and more when I'm doing clinical education is we know that this idea that pain doesn't ooze like pus even from a broken leg or the tiger bite or the knife in the leg because that pain can still change in acute scenarios. And that is, you know, the, if the tiger bites you and is bitten your leg and you have all that nociceptive input, if you are in a situation where there's so much threat and danger that you need to fight off that tiger and survive, your pain or your brain will not construct pain because it'll distract you from doing those protective modalities. So, I'm not, you know, even using these acute because there's so many acute pain examples of when this idea that the pain pus, it doesn't line up with the pain pus. And yet we still, from a clinical standpoint, have difficulty wrapping our heads around the hows and whys of that. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling here, Sharna. I need, I, what else can we do to help encourage our colleagues to move away from this causation thinking when it comes to an experience? Well, you can take the horse to the water. You can't make the horse drink the water. You just cannot. So I think that that saying to me means more than anything else because I can you can keep trying to help them understand this, but unless they're ready to keep their brains open to that, it's not it's not going to work. So I have I have stepped back from that and said, you know, it when they come to me with their patients and you know they have a problem, that is my opportunity to delve into it and help help clean it up a little bit of their thinking or knock off the cobwebs that are there around this whole thing about you know the acute versus chronic and um, that it pain is still constructed in the brain and not necessarily that tiger bite that you have in the leg you you know the sensations are there but the brain's telling you that the sensations are there that you know you just got bitten by the tiger bite that's your heat source and your emotional sources, you know, I'm scared. That's your emotional source. So, and the sensory part, it may be higher, 
in the acute state, you know, depending on what the situation may be. So I, I can't give you any help with helping um, co-workers in that manner. The only way, yeah, they have to come to you. It's like what, what they, another Indian saying is, um, the teacher will arrive when the student is ready. <laughs> Well, I, I was thinking about that because, you know, I think most of us have heard about the can't lead a horse to water or you can lead a horse water, but you can't make them drink. And I'm like, well, what do you need to do? You need to make the horse thirsty. So <laughs> how do we make our clinicians thirsty so that they're willing to drink the water or wanting to drink the water versus feeling like they're being forced to, to you know, to. to... Yeah, and that comes from reflections. So if we, we have a patient who we mess up with, or we fail with, you know, that is the time, that's the best learning opportunity. But as clinicians, what do we say? Oh, they didn't want to get better, so they left. But we don't sit down to think about it. And I, I'll, I'll give you an example of how I failed with one of my patients in primary care. One of the uh, providers had referred a patient and she was a younger patient and um, was having chronic pain. And I got so excited in this primary care model where we are supposed to spend like, five to 10 minutes at the most. But I got so excited that I started telling her so much stuff. It was like a fire hydrant um, and that. And, and she just got so upset with me. And she said, you guys just think that I'm just making this all up and it's all in my brain and that I, it's all in my head and this is what it is and nobody takes me seriously. And, and she walked out on me. And I was so upset about it because I really believed her and I really wanted to help her. But I realized my approach was not the right approach with her. And I, I sat and reflected on that and I realized she was a young patient. She reminded me of my kid's age. And I felt I, did, I wanted to give her everything I had in that moment, but that's not what she needed. Mm -hmm. All she needed was validation. And I, I missed that opportunity. So yes, I will say that reflection. And, and I, I, my lesson learned was young patients are triggering me because it's making me feel like, oh, you know, it's like your kid's age. You, oh, poor thing. They don't need to live that with so much pain for the rest of their life. We can help them, but you need to back up. You need to completely back up because that's where your biases are and you just have to validate it and just go back to your 101, which is, which is what we do with every patient. But in this case, I totally messed it up. Well, I, I, that, I wouldn't say failed, right? You would say that was a learning experience because well, the, yeah. the, the most profound learning tends to come from when things don't line up right. Right. You know, well, for uh, me, it was a failure, but that's <laughs> I'll, I'll take your kind words to well, all that. No, but, but it is, it's really important is, is and, and this actually has, this is, this is from the science as well. I and mean, you look at the science of learning. We learn most, not when things go well, because if things are going well, then we have this sort of, um, uh, I'm, I'm losing my words, but, but the brain operates in three different kinds of time perspectives. There's the past, the present, and the future. And we're always sort of looking, anticipating in, in the forefront, right? So if you, if you were, if everything's going perfectly well in that prediction, the brain's prediction of what's going to happen lines up with the current simulation of what the, this kind of sensory environment is coming in, then you just proceed to the next step. You don't actually learn. But when your prediction of what's going to occur next 
doesn't line up with what actually does occur. So the simulation prediction don't line up that discrepancy there. That's when the brain then says something's different. I need to actually learn from this. So we get the most learning when things don't go the way we want them to. Absolutely. So I'm just going to, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Well, and I, I don't want to just get kind of, kind of uh, pulled out because what you did then is you had this episode and you recognized and became aware of your biases, but that, that was powerful learning. And it, granted, it, it, it's not though we don't necessarily want that to, we want everybody to come in. We want to make sure we're validating. We want to make sure that we're connecting with our clients. Um, but that episode that you had from your standpoint provided great learning so you could see where your biases are. I can see that as a mother, when you see a young, younger person and you, and you, man, you just want them to get better. I, I, that's one of the reasons I could never do pediatric anesthesia because it, it, it was it, as a clinician, all I could see was my kids and you can't work in that environment. Um, but the other part, you know, for, for, for your client that you're working with, there's an opportunity there. Well, hopefully there was an opportunity for her to learn too. Cause unfortunately what it sounds like is that was the, her prediction was that you were not validating and that sort of was aligning with it, but maybe, maybe that kind of switched and she'll be moving. Oh, away from who that. knows? Who yeah. Knows? Who knows? Who knows? I had planned to call her back, but I, I wasn't sure if I, I was ready for that. So. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, it's a, that's kind of an interesting modality because then you have somebody who who is feeling, who hasn't been felt like they were validated, that their experience was validated. That could, I, I would think that would be really powerful is to call them back later because they're probably not expecting that. Yeah, I, I, I had it. That was my full intention to do that, but I did not. I was even going to have one of the MAs call just to check in and say how things were or whatever it was. But you know what? Uh, I, I put that as my learning experience for sure. So, I mean, and those are the most precious ones, I would say for me. So kind of moving back to where we started a little bit with this causality thinking and what I wanted to kind of end on here was a little discussion is because we use those acute examples, you know, the stabs and the tigers and all that stuff in the, in the cute, cute world. But in the more of the persistent phenomenon, we see that all the time when people are starting to label neuropathic pain or fibromyalgia or phantom limb as somehow fundamentally different entities when it comes to pain or pain care. And I always kind of find that interesting because again, we're, we're just moving this idea of the pain pus generator that somehow fibromyalgia is a different pain pus generator than neuropathic pain. When it, really it's just the, con the contributors are different. So you, you know, and I, I'll use that, the, the fire pain analogy quite often is you can have different fires that are constructed with different materials that the oxygen supply is different. That the heat element maybe has changed, but fundamentally the process is exactly the same for those fires and for pain. It's, it's the same way. So when people are stumbling around like neuropathic pain, this guy patient's got diabetic peripheral neuropathic pain, and they think that that somehow is now fundamentally different, you know, the, from a clinical standpoint, I can see where that would become very frustrating. So from your perspective and your practice, have you either found clients that struggle kind of differentiating pain versus the pain pus? Or from a clinical standpoint, do you have any colleagues that are like, oh yeah, I understand that persistent pain, but you know what, this person has got peripheral neuropathy or, or whatever. And somehow that's, again, that's, that's in this different thing where it doesn't actually work. 
So the two, two uh, incidences come to mind. One is the neuropathic pain. It's like, if you have neuropathic pain, you're doomed for life is how, how um, the perception is of that person's pain. Or the clinician also is like, oh, they have neuropathic pain. There's nothing you can change about that. And, and to me, that's not true because you can help them change. You, you can change a lot of the contributors to pain um, and change their behaviors more than anything else. So, um, so that, that's one incident. The other one I, um, and I, I've seen that in our clinical practice also, like I had a patient come in who had years of PT with different pain clinics and whatnot in, in Portland. And they, they had moved over here and she was following up with me. And she's like, my nerve pain has never changed. And all we did was just simple, um, I would say novel exercises, the things that she had never done in the clinic and doing things that you know she never expected to do. And I said, just let's try this and see how that changes. And sure enough, her flexibility changed and her movement changed. And she's like, I'm not, I'm able to, remodel my whole bathroom and stuff like that so and it was very fast she's like i've never been able to change this aspect of this neuro neuropathic pain of mine and i'm surprised i'm able to do that i'm like exactly you did all the work i see you once a month so you i'm not doing anything i'm just giving you some tools so anyway so that was one the other one is um chronic fatigue syndrome and and i have a, a problem with um uh, chronic, uh, there's a group on Facebook that is one of my very good friends is on it. And um, the, the thing about chronic fatigue syndrome is that they, there is this conversation that certain, like you cannot do a certain amount of activity when your heart rate goes up at a certain level then you are set back for a very long time with that. And, um, and I, I have a problem with that because what I like to my stand on that is I let the patient decide what and how much they can do. I don't want it to be stuck on that heart rate, um, you know, changes that they are talking about. Because if the patient is able to trust their sensory input, or would it be output? Um, their, their sensory awareness, let's go with awareness, their sensory awareness of how much they can do then they are gauging themselves and then they can progress themselves as in how they can, they want to. But if you start limiting them by telling them that, oh, this, you know, the, you, the pacing, the heart rate pacing cannot, you cannot have them go with such a higher heart rate, then they're going to be set back for weeks behind. So I have a problem with that because now that that's a totally different diagnosis and it's not biopsychosocial and you know it doesn't have the emotions and the um, thoughts in it. So I I cannot align with that thinking right now. Well, you're externalizing control again, right? And there, so we're not saying that heart rate is not a useful modality or heart rate uh, monitoring may not be a. a useful modality. But what we're saying is when you externalize the patient's functionality to some sort of external device, there's a problem. Because I, I like what you're saying is, is there's a, you know, you're looking at like perceived exertion and mm -hmm. you're allowing them, that's something they have absolute control over. 
But what if they say, what if they're exerting themselves and they actually feel good? They feel that they're powerful. They're, they're, they're moving through whatever activity it is. And then you're saying, well, no, you can't do that because this, this little monitor says it has to be under hundred and you're 101. Uh, that, that, I, I, that to me becomes problematic in a lot of ways as well, because we're, we're, again, we're, 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 what we should be focusing on is the function of the client, exactly. what they perceive is important to them. And then we can build all that stuff around it. You know, if you want to, if you have somebody then that maybe has fears associated with a rising heart rate, then we can use in that heart rate monitor and say, this is a tool for you that you can utilize then to provide some sort of external uh, cue that you maybe in this specific clinical scenario that you need, but not everybody's going to need that. And, and we're not then kind of defining it by a specific number or specific di device or often more often a specific tool that we really, really like. And we want to kind of force people into the mold around, but anyway, that's a whole different topic of like chronic fatigue, you know, and how that, how that kind of, uh, overlaps with with pain in so many different ways so. and also long long covid you know so it, it is a big topic then oh long covid says we, we're probably gonna have discussions about that in the future uh for sure is is because um what do they actually have a different name for it i forgot what they call it packs or parks or something post-acute I think it's post-acute sequelae of coronavirus infection. Some some kooky, you know, we always have to have these acronyms for things. Um, but yeah, there's 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 some elements to that when we're again we're moving into what I call the experiential category. That requires a different set of thinking than in the object, like the broken bone category. In pain, in chronic fatigue, uh, long COVID those symptoms, those are so firm in that experiential category. You have to use a different clinical thinking in order to really kind of understand as well as apply your different techniques and therapeutic modalities and to align it with what works, get what returns control uh, back to our clients in those settings. So something came to me to the panacea, and I, I don't like that word panacea that much, but you know, the panacea to patient care to some extent is patient autonomy, helping them get a mastery over what they are doing and help them figure out their purpose or the values that they have. I mean, I feel if I can go with those three things, and this is from um, this book, Drive, I just read with Daniel Craig. Oh my gosh, I'm such a big fan of his now. But that autonomy is such a big, I mean, I'm, and it's lovely when you have this confirmation bias, right? Because then he puts it in a nice packet that that is so important. And that empowerment piece that you talk about, right? The, so that and mastery, it's like get a master, you know, you become the master of your own body. You don't need an external device. Well, it's it's good to have a, well, you know, heart monitor, cardiac monitor and walk around with that if that's what you are, you know, you can afford to do it. But 99% of my patients who come from rural Lebanon don't have that. So I have to show them ways that they can trust their body, be aware of the sensations, the heart rate, your breathing, your flushing of your skin, pay attention to those things more than anything else. And then purpose, I'm big on that piece. It's like, 
what is value? What is of value to you? What are your values? And I, that's like my new big thing is I have a stash of value cards that I have my patients go through and um, they pick their top six. And then I say, what are the top three? And value-based actions. And I had all the therapists do it too. And, and we're going to make little cards on and put it on in front of our um, computers. So we're, we're all working through our values and, and we practice what we preach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That'll be cool. It will anyway. be cool. No, that, and, and um, what I like about that is, is, is returning, again, that sense of control to the individual as well. Uh, and I, I do like, you know, autonomy, mastery, and purpose is uh, some of the key things around intrinsic motivation, the reason people want to move, why they do the things, which is, which is the big thing, right? And particularly from a, from a, from a physical th therapist standpoint for you guys is, is the idea of non-compliance, right? Oh, I, I want them to do this because I know that if they do this activity, they're going to get better. And then we say, oh, they don't want to do it. Well, we're, we're not understanding the drives behind people's individual behavior. Exactly. Exactly. Why do they want to, why are they not moving? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it doesn't matter. It's not important to them to move. It's fine with me. I have nothing to lose if you don't want to move, but then you're here for a reason. What is your reason? Well, I love mm -hmm. my dog. I want to take my dog for the, for a walk. I was like, no, that's your reason. That's your hook. Well, let's talk about your dog. You know, so it, 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 even though that's an extrinsic reason, and, um, the dog is their extrinsic reason, but that's their carrot. And who am I to question that? If that's what's going to motivate them, then let's go for that. In that process, maybe your health becomes more important and, you know, so on and so forth. So, well, I, I, would, I would say it's still an intrinsic motivator. There's an extrinsic object or, or person, the, the, the dog, right? but they care and they want to do it because it would be very different. What would be an extrinsic motivator would be say, you have to walk the dog, like a parent yeah. telling their kids. Okay. Right. So that, that's what changes that picture there. But, and, and it becomes such a powerful tool. And we had talked about in a previous episode about the idea between fixing and facilitating all these really cool things. When we're talking about autonomy, when we're talking about mastery, we're talking about purpose, we're talking about the uh, moving away from causation to, to sort of this constructive thinking, it returns to what defines the human experience. And, and that's the stuff that gives me goosebumps about this is because when you start studying pain and you, and you understand it, it doesn't, we move away from the pipes and plumbing and this whole idea about what the receptor is doing. And we start looking at what it means to be a human. And that is so cool. And from a clinical standpoint, I just can't think of anything more, more deep, more meaningful, and as profound as really kind of helping people to become better humans. Absolutely. It, it goes beyond pain now. So fun. Yeah. And stuff. And then, you know, you have clinicians who will say, oh, you're acting like a psychologist. I said, hey, it, I don't see, I'm not a psychologist. I am not trying to be a psychologist. I am trying to be a human being. And for me, a human being means sitting in the, on the same table, listening to this person at the same, um, you know, um, vibration, that same resonance that, oh, I hear you. I totally, my gosh, you lost 10 pounds. I've been trying to lose five and hats off to you. You know, that, that whole conversation of, of, you know, we're in this together and there is no hierarchy. Yes, I'm a healthcare provider. Yes, I've been a PT for 35 years. That doesn't mean anything. 
because you are the expert of your body. You know your body better than anybody else. And how can I just help you get to be safer than you are right this moment? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You are the expert in you. And we are, you know, that is, uh, ah, anyway, well, like we could talk about, again, we can talk about all sorts of stuff for sure. I could talk to you for, for several hours, but I think that's a great place to leave it on this particular episode here. Thank you. All right. So everybody, thank you for joining us today on Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin Kukar, with my fabulous guest, Dr. Sharna Prasad. Uh, talking pain, pain care, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me directly at drkevin at straightshothealthtalk. Oh, sorry, drkevin at straightshothealth.com. Uh, and until next time, folks, stay well. <laughs>